Welcome back to the 430 Movie. We got our expert programmers here to curate Fantasy Theme Week's of classic film from 1998 film directed by Steven Soderbergh called Out of Sight yes Soderbergh directs it with such a sort of confident self-assured style Lex Luthor in Superman what is it about Gene Hackman that uh... his performance it's off the charts but still in reality fiendishly gifted 1981 Sam Raimi Opus The Evil Dead oh yes fine choice Sam Raimi invented entirely new ways to get shots that should not have been possible with the amount of money that he did not have charade oh directed by Stanley Donnan it's a textbook screenplay it's just effortless and there's not a wrong note in this movie can't say enough great things about it we'll be back next Friday with an all new episode of the 430 movie wherever you listen to podcasts join us now for the 430 Movie. The 430 Movie Podcast is available weekly wherever you listen to podcasts and on the free Electric Now app. Download it today. Hello and welcome to Best Movies Never Made, the podcast where we talk about interesting and infamous movies that never made it to or through production. Most of the time, the movies you're trying to make don't get made. Like, four of them may happen, one of them may happen, none of them may happen, and I'll be attached to three more things by end of summer. Turn the script into something resembling Unforgiven with Conan. Yeah. Sadly, the rights expired and the whole thing just like went away overnight. New episodes will be available every other Monday. We won't see you at the movies. Best Movies Never Made, as featured in Entertainment Weekly, is available wherever you listen to podcasts and on the free Electric Now app. If you think you felt a great disturbance in the force, you're not wrong. Ed Gross and me, Mark A. Altman, have a new oral history from St. Martin's Press. It's Secrets of the Force, the complete, uncensored, unauthorized oral history of the Star Wars saga. So wherever you buy books, audio and video, Pick it up today, and you can learn the secrets of the Force. And don't miss our oral history of Star Trek in stores now. And, of course, nobody does it better. The complete oral history of James Bond in digital, hardcover, paperback, and audio. That is all. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And this is Darren Dockerman. And we are the Inglorious Tracksperts. Captain's log, stardate 1710.0. The starship Enterprise is under heavy attack by an enemy vessel. Obviously, their weaponry is superior to ours, and they have a practical invisibility screen. Helm, hard over. Phasers, fire, point blank. <laughs> I'm pointing out that we could have Romulan spies aboard this ship. The Earth commander will follow, he must. And when he attacks, we will destroy him. Permit me the glory of the kill, Commander. Thomas, we have him. Move toward him. We can get just one phaser going. Phasers, Mr. Spock. Impossible, Captain. We have some of the old-style nuclear warheads aboard. Yes, Commander, but only for self-destruction. Place one in with the debris. And today, we went on an incredible adventure, and I didn't even hurt my knee. We went uh, to the Skirball Center, which is doing an amazing exhibit called Exploring Star Trek. And uh, Scott Mance uh, curated um, a series called Best of Star Trek. Two of the episodes were Arena and Balance of Terror. And Darren and I were there to do uh, live uh, Q&A with uh, um, a standing room only audience and uh, has had a great time, I have to say. But before we talk about that, we got some housekeeping to take care of. Housekeeping. Housekeeping. Yes, indeed. So I have to say, Darren, based on your recommendation, I went out for my birthday and got a pair of AirPod Maxes. Nice. And I love them. Well, I would hope so because you get I love sort of, uh, you get that high fidelity sound. They're supported uh, from uh, Apple, and it uh, it spatializes everything, and it, sounds it spatializes great. beyond your imagination. Um, 
No, but you know, you know, it's great. It's funny because, uh, you know, obviously the trade-off was, you, you know, which is amazing because they, they don't do lossless because they don't have a wired version right. where you can't do right. the digital to analog, uh, um, but it does spatial audio really well. I think, you know, music, even without the lossless, it, it, you know, they're using sort of lossless sources now. So mm-hmm. the music in general, the mixes, it's just everything sounds much better on, uh, on, on Apple Music than it has in the past. But um, it really sounds great when I'm using it with my Apple TV for movies. Sure. You know, when everyone else is sleeping and I got the, the <laughs> headphones on and I'm watching a movie, it's, it's, it's freed me up to watch stuff late at night, which I love. Especially loud stuff. Yeah, it really, uh, I really like them. And I probably wouldn't have gotten them if you hadn't recommended it on the show. So thank oh, you I'm, for that. I'm glad. I'm glad that your life is now enriched. It, it is. It is. It is. And it was a nice little birthday present and your, for myself. And your bank account uh, in poured. Yeah, yeah, well, that, <laughs> that, that, that too. Um, and then, you know, I got a, a, a wonderful uh, gift uh, from my wife, got me um, that uh, wonderful new Star Trek book about mid-century modern, uh, the, which uh, I, um, I'm just getting into now, but uh, very excited about reading it. So um, That's way cool. Yeah, which is, you know, you think that there's a Star Trek book about everything, but now there truly is. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, I, I wouldn't say that Dave Addy's font book was really a font book about Star Trek. It's broader than that. But I thought that's pretty much as geeky and, and specific as you can get. But until no, this. until now, until mid-century yeah. modern furniture in Star Trek, um, you know, because I wouldn't even count like Jeff Bond and Gene Kazicki's like the art, you know, the uh, art of Star Trek, the motion picture. Like that's pretty mainstream. Right. But, you know, the, well, the font mainstream in in our circles well yeah. in, in, in 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 as a star trek book sure but but mid-century modern furniture in star trek you know the, the typeset of the future that stuff's pretty that's pretty narrow <laughs> well it, it that always reminds me of that uh, um the thing from the honeymooners chef of the future typeset of the future it's <laughs> <laughs> a little wpix reference there for you uh, um We've been putting those up from TV Guide occasionally. These little TV Guide excerpts, TV um, Guide verb, blurbs from TV uh, WPIX uh, back in the uh, back in the day, and it's really funny to read what uh, <laughs> TV Guide how they describe different episodes of Star Trek, and it's sort of like name that tune. It's like you got to you read it. Okay, what episode is this? It's like right. oh, you know, right. It's pretty. It's pretty funny. But um, two episodes that we were uh, asked to speak about at the Skirball Center were Arena and Balance of, of Terra, Terror, and Terra? Uh, we, yeah, no, <laughs> Experiment and Terra, the Battlestar Galactic yeah. episode, which was the uh, uh, would pave the way for uh, Quantum Leap, but that's a whole nother thing. I don't yeah. think the Skirball Center is going to be doing a tribute to Battlestar Galactic anytime soon. Well, maybe, maybe not. Well, I don't know. I think this has been such a success for them, and and I have to say. Um, it, it is here in Los Angeles and the exhibit will be open until February. Yeah. And if you have a chance, you're in the area, you should really make a point of checking it out. Um, they have the, uh, the Enterprise D. They have a lot of original props. Um, they have it's the helm not, from Star Trek. It's not a huge exhibit, but what they have is absolute quality. Uh, you know, my kids did uh, the uh, make your own Star Trek episode. Then we, Proceed to get beamed, uh, uh, you know, on the on the on the transporter. Uh, there's a, Je- a Jeffrey's tube for you to bump your head on. There is. Uh, once you 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 know know the ship like the back of your hand and uh, <laughs> smash your head into the header beam. But uh, it's it's really you know a, a delightful exhibit and a lot of fun. And uh, you know I've seen you know other you know exhibits and usually their lowest common denominator. I felt this was well done. Absolutely. Um, and uh, they're really great people at the Scarab Wall, and, and we're pleased to and be. It's great that they have the chance to uh, to finally open this uh, exhibit. They were supposed to do it a year ago, yeah. and uh, of course, uh, COVID just uh, didn't allow it. Um, but uh, it's it's so great that they're uh, you know having success with this, and I wish them uh, even more. Yeah, I've been to exhibits there in the past. They're you know wonderful exhibits, including one on Jim Henson. Mm-hmm. which was uh, was terrific and um uh, they've done some other exhibits that i've been to that i've always i've always enjoyed it's a lovely museum the grounds are wonderful yep. um but uh but this was really fun and i was glad to see 
it's so well attended. I know that Nick Meyer talked about Star Trek two and that they had a lot of success with that outdoors in the amphitheater. But for us, um, it was really a chance to see the episodes projected on the big screen, which I haven't seen since La La Land did their famous screenings in conjunction with the release of their uh, uh, box set of the original Star Trek music. And they screened Shore Leave and Mirror Mirror, I believe. I didn't get to go to that because I was teaching at the time. So Oh, uh, you weren't there. Oh, oh, it was great because Gerald Freed played music from Shore Leave. Yeah, really, I've seen videos of it. It yeah, was, it was great, great. That was it. And I always wanted to say after that, I was like, oh, I got to see um, more episodes on the big screen because this is yeah. pretty remarkable. And so it was great that the um, Skirble did that. And um, I think Scott picked some pretty good episodes. The Akutas Absolutely. were there with City on the Edge of Forever, yep. which was followed by uh, Yesterday's Enterprise. Uh, with Denise Crosby and Measure of a Man with uh, Mr. Personality himself, Brent Spiner. So, um, uh, but we were there to talk about Arena and Balance of Terror. And uh, what I think was really striking was how similar they are tonally in in a lot of ways. Yeah, and it's something that you don't really notice unless you see them next to each other. Mm -hmm. And I I noticed some of those things uh, that we'll we'll talk about when we come back. but uh, yeah, it's uh, it's very interesting to see the parallels between both of them. Yeah. So we were uh, these episodes were screened back to back, and then we were brought out. Uh, the the um, uh, the the panel was moderated by uh, Scott Mance of the uh, who you may know has been on this podcast previously. He is the uh, foremost trek trek enthusiast. Yes. He's not a trekkie or a trekker, uh, nor is he a trek expert. He's a trek enthusiast. And uh, a wonderful one at that, a delightful man with a great deal of enthusiasm, particularly when metamorphosis is involved. And, uh, and he did a great job. And uh, we're about to share with you uh, exclusively uh, the uh, Citizen Kane of Star Trek fans. <laughs> and, and, and this was our, our, our panel at the Skirball uh, Center exploring Star Trek. Uh, we hope you enjoy it. I, I love the episodes with the, the new effects. Uh, I think there are certain episodes that are improved by these new effects. Tomorrow's Yesterday, where they go back to Earth. I mean, that episode, you know, when you see the Earth uh, and the Moon and the Enterprise coming in orbit, I mean, that's what it would look like on the International Space Station. So I think that's really cool. And I think the Doomsday Machine is another episode that is improved, although we're showing the original version tomorrow. But I wanted to honor the visual effects houses that that produced these episodes. Film Effects of Hollywood, Linwood Dunn, the Westheimer Company. I mean, what they had to do in the, late, in the mid to late 60s with Star Trek is, uh, I, I think it absolutely holds up, and these episodes are still fantastic. So let's hear for those filmmakers. But right now, to join us for, for a very in-depth conversation are two very, very good friends of mine. One of them, he's Mark Aubin. He is the author of The 50-Year Mission, The Oral History of Star Trek, Volumes 1 and 2. Excellent books. You've got to read them. He's also the author of uh, Oral Histories on the other star, Star Wars, <laughs> James Bond, and BSG, Battlestar Galactica. He's the writer and producer of an honorary Star Trek movie called Free Enterprise. Tears for Caesar. He is the producer of the TV shows The Librarians and the CW series Pandora, which is going into production for its third season. Please welcome the co-host of Trek Trexperts, Mark A. Altman. Also joining us, uh, Diana Docterman is the winner of the Art Director's Award for Excellence in Production Design for the film Passengers. He is the winner of the DVD Exclusive Award for the Director's Cut of Star Trek The Motion Picture, which, which as of this weekend, had its 20th anniversary because it, was, it came out uh, 20 years ago, the, the Director's Cut version, which is being worked on right now for a special 4K release, which uh, I am very, very excited. Who loves Star Trek The Motion Picture? Come on. No Star Trek movie has aged better than Star Trek The Motion Picture. And I'm sure uh, Mark and Darren will agree. He has worked in the art department for films like The Abyss, Seven, Master and Commander, and Star Trek Beyond. He is the concept artist for Star Trek Picard and the co-host of Inglourious Trexperts, Darren Doctorman. 
Scott. Mark, I'm ready to watch the next 77 episodes. Or maybe 76 if we just forget about Turnabout Intruder. First of all, you know, with, with all the work that, that, that you guys have done over these years, inside and outside of Star Trek, isn't it great just to geek out and watch these episodes on a big screen like this? I love watching the episodes uh, just in general, even when I play them alone in my head. <laughs> but seeing them on, on, the, on the big screen with a bunch of people and hearing the reactions is so great. I, I agree. We I gotta, I gotta say, when, when that red shirt died, and uh, <laughs> I just like was not expecting that. But it was right before he died that the big reaction came. <laughs> yeah. It was like the big, uh oh. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, know, oh, Mark, uh, listen, I picked these two particular episodes for a reason. But what is it about? There has to be a reason. There has to be a reason. It was a trap. Uh, there, were, there was obviously a, a, a lot of reasons, but what is specifically Balance of Terror is just one of the greatest Star Trek episodes ever produced in 55 years. Why does it hold up? Well, there, there's so many reasons, you know, and a lot of shows in the 60s, you know, they were knocking off other movies. I mean, Battlestar Galactic in 78 did it horribly when they did, you know, Fire in Space, which was the towering inferno in space. This is the way you knock off a TV, uh, an old movie uh, <laughs> because it's, you know, it's the enemy below you know, with Robert Mitchum and Kurt Jurgens, but uh, it's a great version, and it doesn't really show its influence too much. I mean, yeah, it's a submarine movie in space, but ultimately what it's really about is, you know, understanding our enemy, and uh, it's a rebuke of xenophobia and racism, you know, and it's much more subtle than something that everybody talks about, like the documentaries about let that be your last battlefield, where it's black on one side and white on the other, and it's so heavy-handed, and everybody talks about, like, oh, Star Trek was so ahead of us. Like, Balance of Terror does it really well and subtle, and it's just such a marvelous episode. And what was really interesting, I don't know if you intended this, the contrast between a Gene Roddenberry episode and a Gene Kuhn episode in Arena, because they both deal with similar themes, but you can really see how Kuhn leans into the character and into the humor, and, you know, and, and ultimately the, the message at the end, but even Spock, who is so borderline jingoistic in Balance of Terror is the one counseling restraint in Arena. And then you have that scene, of course, in Balance of Terror, which is um, really right out of the cage. It's the same scene he wrote for John Hoyt and, um, and Jeffrey Hunter, but it's done even better in Balance of Terror. Agreed. In this galaxy, there's a mathematical probability of three million Earth-type planets. And in all of the universe, Three million, million galaxies like this. And in all of that, and perhaps more, only one of each of us. Don't destroy the one named Kirk. Did you notice that in... Um, Balance of Terror, the Romulan commander says, we've got him. And Kirk says the same thing in Arena. I never noticed that. I, but, but you know what, Mark, I did. And it, what was the 80th time you've seen it, charitably? <laughs> 180th time? 180th. But no, I did pick, the, pick these episodes for, for a reason, and, um, many reasons, among them being because they are similar, but the tones are very different because of the two genes. Darren... What, what, wow, this is a loaded question. <laughs> the, the difference between Gene Roddenberry and, and Gene Kuhn. What did Gene Kuhn bring to Star Trek that, that was missing for the first half of the first season? Amphetamines. <laughs> you know, I think that Gene Kuhn brought actually a, a broader background in terms of uh, drama and uh, making a story interesting for an audience. Um, uh, though, you know, Gene Roddenberry was an amazing writer, Gene Kuhn also didn't take it quite as seriously. So he could afford to have maybe a little more fun, maybe a little more humor, uh, but definitely some really important character moments. Um, the, the, great, the great path of Kirk in Arena specifically, of him being a, a vengeful killer at the beginning, you know, when he finds out what's happened to Cestus III, and then his turn as it 
as it occurs during his fight. It's, uh, it's, it's again, really subtle, but it's really magical when you see it happen. Captain's log, stardate 3045.6. The Enterprise has responded to a call from Cestus 3. On landing, we have discovered that the outpost has been destroyed. How can you explain a massacre like that? You must make certain that the alien vessel never reaches its home base. I intend to. Firing pieces, Captain. <laughs> both veterans. I mean, Roddenberry uh, was a veteran of World War II. Kuhn was. He fought in Korea, also Kuhn. And he was a, a journalist and an author. Um, Kuhn had a lot of writing experience. Of course, Rod Roddenberry was a speechwriter for William Parker. But um, in a lot of ways, they were very similar. And it, it is a personal crusade of mine to extol Gene Kuhn, because of course, he died in 1973 of lung cancer. And so he didn't get to go to all the conventions, and he didn't get to sign all the autographs, and he didn't, you know, get to be self-aggrandizing. And I say that with love, and any, you know, but uh, and it's a shame because he is, you know, the beating heart of that show. And even here, you see the evolution from command base to uh, the Federation, and all the things that um, Gene Kuhn was bringing, like the Klingons, like um, the United Federation of Planets, like the Prime Directive, uh, in other episodes. Kuhn was a genius and sometimes doesn't get the love that he deserves, the recognition. What, one big contribution, and we're not showing this one, but he created the Klingons in Errand of Mercy. That's Gene Kuhn. And Darren, I want to ask you, so, so you, you know, you, you talked about, Mark, you were talking about how, uh, how, how the, you know, compared to other shows, even like Lost in Space, and you had, I mean, Gilligan's Island, I Dream of Genie, and, and like Gomer Pyle, and then you have a show like Star Trek, which you know, Roddenberry intended for Star Trek to, to be a subtle metaphor for the times. But Gene Kuhn took that ball and he ran with it. Like if you look at like Devil in the Dark and Never to Mercy, like he really leaned into that a little more, didn't he? Let's be careful not to denigrate Gilligan's Island and I Dream of Genie. <laughs> um, because they have a special place in my heart too. Uh, but yeah, Gene Kuhn, um, as I was saying before, he was a, a master storyteller. You know, he, he wasn't necessarily the big world builder the way Gene Roddenberry was, but he knew individually story-wise how to give those characters the proper beats, how to be uh, subtle with the, uh, with the moral message, and yet still be exactly on target with what he intended from the episodes. He also walked the walk. You know, Gene Kuhn's assistant was a woman named Andrea Kindred, who was the first African-American assistant at Desilu and later at Paramount, who he hired to be his assistant. And she was good friends with Martin Luther King and with Kanenga and with um, uh, Malcolm X. And so uh, Kuhn was really interested in her. And, like, and his father had been a Klansman. Kuhn. So it's really amazing. And he was, you know, super liberal and super progressive. Um, and how far he'd come from the upbringing that he had. He was a really remarkable guy. And, you know, we were lucky enough on the podcast to have Andrea come on and talk about her experience, you know, with Gene. And it's really remarkable. Yeah. You know, by the way, that episode you were talking about, Let That Be Your Last Battlefield, that heavy handed beating you over the head episode, we're showing that tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> Can't wait. Can we stay and watch Aaron Mercy tonight at midnight, keep the lights on? Yeah, that, that would be great. <laughs> I, I'm down with that. Yeah, Darren, I, Mark, you brought up a, another thing, too, about, about the shift, the, the, the fact that our, our main characters learn. And one, one thing that I've always loved about Star Trek, there's a lot, uh, but one thing was just that people always sort of on the surface said, oh, Star Trek is about the perfection of humanity. And that's wrong. It's about the striving, striving, we're always going to be learning. We're never going to be perfect. If we're not perfect in the 21st century, we're not going to be perfect in the 23rd century. We will hopefully be better, but we'll keep learning. But and look how Kirk dismisses Spock in Arena. 
he's really a jerk to him, yeah, right? Yeah, he's aggressive. But it sinks in, and by the end of the episode, he's processed what Spock has said and acts on it. So, you know, people can argue, and people can have fights, and people can disagree, but ultimately, the common good, you know, brings them together, you know? And, it and was, that's why it was so realistic. It was only this, uh, quote, perfection of humanity that occurred after the series was over, after Gene began going on his lecture tours and talking to colleges and creating this mythos that wasn't necessarily there during the series. How many times have you been to Vasquez Rocks, Scott? Oh, like a dozen, <laughs> a dozen. Yeah. In fact, there's a great story. I don't know if this is true. Uh, it might be like, a, you know, print the legend kind of thing. But, you know, in 1966, so Vasquez Rocks is a national park. Obviously, they filmed tons of TV shows and films there. Sure. But it's because it's a national park, you cannot close it off when they are filming. You can film there, you can go there, but you can't close it off. Oh, I know. So, so <laughs> <laughs> yes, you sure do. Uh, so, uh, boy, that's a whole other story. So one day in 1966, a family, from, a family of four from Oklahoma, they, they went to Vasquez Rocks for a, for a day in the park, and they were having a picnic, enjoying the weather, and suddenly around the corner comes this thing. Why is everything we don't understand always called a thing? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I need you. Uh, so, so yeah, that family was never heard from again. But I do want to talk about how, <laughs> I do want to talk about how, you know, so for, for both of these episodes, and you're right, I mean, in Arena, he's much more aggressive about his pursuit of the Gorn. But in both episodes, when the Enterprise is in pursuit of the Romulan and in the Gorn ship, in one episode, Kirk is, he's a little more uh, brooding about it, and the other one is more aggressive, but he's, he's after them. And then he changes. He, he, after almost destroying the Romulan, he extends a hand of compassion. And after almost killing the Gorn, he says, no, I'm not going to kill you. Like, let's, th that shift is important, isn't it, Mark? No, I won't kill you. Maybe you thought you were protecting yourself when you attacked the outpost. No, I won't kill him. Do you hear? You'll have to get your entertainment someplace else. You're a Metron. Does my appearance surprise you, Captain? You seem more like a boy. I am approximately 1,500 of your Earth years old. You surprise me, Captain. How? By sparing your helpless enemy, who surely would have destroyed you. You demonstrated the advanced trait of mercy, something we hardly expected. We feel that there may be hope for your kind. Therefore, you will not be destroyed. It would not be civilized. What happened to the Gorn? I sent him back to his ship. If you like, I shall destroy him for you. No, that won't be necessary. Yeah, it's super important. Uh, I mean, but again, it's that whole message of understanding your enemy. And what you said at the beginning, that, the, you know, the Star Trek often didn't have villains, they had antagonists. So, you know, the Gorn was an antagonist. Once you really get to know your antagonist, you realize that maybe, you know, there's a reason behind the way they're acting. It, it's so important, the fact that this was created in the 60s when, you know, the Russians were our you know, adversaries, the Chinese, and, you know, saying to understand your enemy. You know, and it, it really, uh, in so many ways, you know, past the headlines, Star Trek really was ahead of its time. And of course, you know, all the cliches about, oh, the communicator and the technology and the sliding doors, all that's true. But, you know, socially, politically, it is remarkable how ahead of the times it was in uh, and and it's, there's still lessons to be learned just watching that now. I mean, look at Styles. I mean, you said it yourself at the beginning. Um, leave any bigotry you have in your quarters. You know, he, Kirk shuts that down right away. Keep coming. 
Cryptography is working on it, sir. Give it the spark. Didn't quite get that, Mr. Sam. Nothing, sir. Repeat it. I was suggesting that Mr. Spock could probably translate it for you, sir. I assume you're complimenting Mr. Spock on his ability to decode. I'm not sure, sir. Well, here's one thing you can be sure of, Mr. Leave any bigotry in your quarters. There's no room for it on the bridge. Do I make myself clear? You do, sir. <laughs> It shuts it down perfectly. It's such a great moment. Darren, I want to ask you, so, so the thing about, about, about the original show, as it was being produced, especially the, the first season, the first two seasons, which are the best. So during those times, this is the late 60s, you had civil rights, uh, you had protests, you had Vietnam, you had the Cold War. I mean, there was so much going on, so much bleakness at once. It was really just a very, very, very difficult time. Sound familiar? But then you have the show that addressed these issues, but in a positive way, in an aspirational way. Uh, like, why was Star Trek, Darren, why was Star Trek the show that, that we needed at the time? Why is Star Trek the show we need now? Well, I think the answer is that because the writing, again, there's that subtlety that the story can be interesting enough for kids to watch it, for us to watch it. And, you know, we didn't get all of the, you know, political uh, uh, information from it. We didn't, we didn't know what the big picture was. We didn't know how it related to real life. But now we do. And you can grow along with it. You know, as you learn, you begin making these connections, saying, oh, that's what they were doing. And it's really magical, but the, the point is to make it, the first job was to make it an entertaining show so that people would watch it. And then you put in the, you know, the juicy stuff for later, you know, for the audience to realize it later. It's not bonk, bonk on the head to, you know, to quote a phrase. <laughs> I get the mirror reference. <laughs> and look, let's, let's also throw the skirball bone, you know, Star Trek also, in, in Judaism, there's a thing called tikkun olam, which is repair the world, and, you know, it's aspirational. And the same thing with Star Trek. It is projecting a better world and how we can live together to make the world better and something to strive for, that we may never achieve that, but we, it, it's the striving that makes it worthwhile. Yeah. And um, I think that's, you know, part of Star Trek is very aspirational. When it's at its best, you, you, you want to be these characters, you, and you want to live in that world. We still want to be these characters. Uh, I, I just want to, if, if you have any questions, if anybody has any questions, you know, we got two microphones up here on the stage, so, so come on and down. And four lights. And, and uh, there are four <laughs> lights. You're crossing the streets. I the only TOS see three lights, gen. Mark. Wrong show. We got a question right over here. Why don't you start, start off? I'd like you to comment on maybe a less progressive aspect of one of these episodes, and that's the treatment of women. And I'm talking about, especially the contrast in uh, the first one, uh, Balance of Terror, where you've got Yeoman Rand hanging all over Kirk and him putting his arm around her. And yet, the woman who's going to get married is one of the phaser chiefs. Exactly. So, the, so you've got a dichotomy there, <laughs> a little sexism, but a little progression. Can you talk about that? I, I, will, I will say this, uh, you're absolutely right to point that out, and that's one of the reasons why the character of Rand was dropped from the original series. Uh, and, you know, also... Grace well, they Hulu. wanted to open him up to other love interests other than Well, Rand, that too, so. that but, too. But, but, uh, but, but, there, but, you know, he's right. It, it, it was progressive. I mean, you had, you had a woman in engineering in charge. Uh, of, of course, you've got to put in the context of the era, and if you look at the roles for women on other shows... I mean, Star Trek was remarkable, even though you never saw it till the animated series. You know, Uhura was like fifth in line for the captaincy. Um, and, you know, if you look at... And she just steps up to the navigator spot and, in, and, that, and in that you, spot. You, you know, she you, can do everything on the bridge. If you look at, you know, a lot of Kirk's, um, you know, ex-girlfriends, they're all, you know, um, Commodores and, and people yeah. with responsive And they all still liked him and, except that last one. You know, and, and so... I think, you know, for the time, it's incredibly, um, you know, empowering, but, you know, there are certain tropes of the era, 
and, and also it's a great shot too. <laughs> I think what, what Roddenberry actually spoke about was that, you know, it's about choice. I mean, it, you know, the, the honoring and respecting of women includes all the choices that they want to make. You know, if Rand wanted to be by Kirk's side, as she did in a couple episodes, then let her choose that. And to Kirk's credit, Kirk always was keeping her at arm's length. Absolutely. Kirk was, you know, there was the implication that Rand was interested and wanted a romantic relationship with Kirk. And, you know, Kirk, because he was a superior officer, never pursued that. Yeah. Uh, uh, not quite. In uh, The Enemy Within, he... Well, but that yeah, doesn't... Yeah, but that's the man. That was <laughs> evil Kirk. <laughs> that was the evil Kirk from episode number five. Get a life. <laughs> what next question? Kirk's safe number. Um, Mr. Mance... You, you mentioned, you know, like, uh, let this be your last battlefield as so blatant, which to me, it needed to be blatant because I, like you, I think Star Trek, obviously it started in 66, but for me, I didn't get into it till the 70s when it was on KTLA on Saturdays and Sundays at 5. Um, that's when I first started realize that show was the first show that made me realize what Star Trek was about versus just fantasy. And what you guys mentioned is how it's really about the people and the cast development. That's why I think when you selected Star Trek II for the movie last week, why that was so monumentally different than the motion picture. Not that I didn't enjoy it, but the difference was the motion picture was about technology and Star Trek's successes were the people. Well, well, I will say this about the motion picture. Star Trek, the motion picture, it, it, it wasn't appreciated for this at the time, but Star Trek, the motion picture, actually is a quintessential Star Trek story. Especially the director's edition. <laughs> <laughs> but I will say this too, by the way, you're, you're talking up here to three guys who, who are part of the syndication generation of Star Trek. That's the generation that made Star Trek popular, and that's why we're here. So, by the way, speaking of which, what was the first episode you saw? I have no clue. <laughs> I mean, I, I was watching when I was very young. Maybe it was the animated series. People always ask me this. Whenever they're interviewing me for documentaries, like, what was your first Star Trek? I have no idea. But I do want to say this. I, when I went to Vasquez Rocks for the first time, I was expecting to see that fort. I didn't realize that it was built for uh, the Bengal Lancers TV show, and that it, because it was in, like, Mission Impossible and a bunch of stuff. But it had been torn down in the early 70s. I felt like, you know, I was, I was ripped off. I wanted the whole experience. I, I wanted the Cestus Three experience. I didn't get the food. I didn't get the, you know, the, the, the anything. I just got Commodore the Commodore Travers, rock. long gone. <laughs> what about you? Do you remember your first? Oh, absolutely. I, was it? I, I first got into Star Trek with the animated show. And it was very, you know, very few months later that I realized, oh, there's a live action one too. <laughs> um, but the first one, of course, was the uh, uh, Beyond the Farthest Star uh, episode of uh, the animated, which was creepy as hell, and it scared me as a kid, and I loved it. Uh, and the first episode of the live action was uh, Devil in the Dark. That's a good one. <laughs> but all right, the animated series uh, won an Emmy for best, uh, you know, uh, children's show. And I got to say, some of those episodes, especially Yesteryear, written by Dorothy Fontana, would have made, can you imagine Yesteryear as a live action Where episode? are the episodes, Scott? Why, why, why didn't you program it if you loved it so much? Next weekend. <laughs> we got another question right here. First, I have to confess I am a pre-syndication Star Trek fan. Back It's all right. Uh, but because of the Skirball activities, we made our first, Jenny and I made our first trip to Vasquez Rocks last month, which oh. is, it's well worth the trip for anybody who hasn't been there before. But when we prepared to go, um, Vasquez Rocks has this mythical presence in Star Trek from Arena to being where Spock's mother died and appearing in Picard again. Is there, besides the backdrop, is there a backstory of why... Absolutely. Okay. It's because it's within what they call the 30-mile well, zone. <laughs> this is absolutely true. The 30-mile zone, which radiates from, I, I guess it's uh, Hollywood and Vine, uh, it's a, a union thing, that if you take your remote location to something within the 30-mile zone, 
you don't have to pay for hotels. Uh-huh. And it's the closest place within the zone that looks like an alien planet because there are not a lot of alien planets in the zone. Yeah. So, <laughs> Vasquez rocks. If a starship enters the zone. zone. <laughs> uh, we got another question right here. Thank you for that, by the way. I am also a child of syndication, but I was WPIX in New York. Yes, yep. <laughs> 11 Alive, woo! Um, so you said something that I thought was really interesting, which is sort of the mythology that has grown up around Gene and Gene's dream. And, you know, in Star Trek fandom, there's a lot of talk about Gene's dream and Idik when he created Idik because he wanted to shell shiny, shiny doodads. <laughs> and so I'm wondering how you feel that that recreation of the origin story has affected the ongoing Star Trek projects and series? Wow, what a question. That's a good question. Um, Who wants to take that one? (laughs) Well, I I think I ought to take that as uh, as Gene himself. Um, Gene would probably say that, you know, there are many stories that that are developed after uh, many years of telling telling the the backstory of how everything happened. Um, But we have to realize that Uh, one can be uh, directed in the direction of uh, making money and still have good good intentions to everything else. I think think that Gene was many people and all of these facets of him um, created this larger-than-life persona that he helped create um, because it was useful for him to have this massive following of fans. And he used that constantly to make his deals better at the studio. And he saved the show. He he... saved the show. Um, But I think that, yes, he was in it. He was in it to make money. But as he moved along, he also realized that it was a great opportunity to show the positivity, to show the direction that would be great for humanity to go in. And I think that at his heart, he was absolutely that kind of good person. Yeah, you know, um, there's an expression on the man, man save Liberty Valance, a man killed Liberty Valance, you know, print the legend. And I think with Gene, we kind of print the legend, which is great because I think that is truly the man Gene wanted to be. And if he didn't live up to those ideals, at least he put them out there and inspired so many people. Yeah. And, and um, you know, everyone's flawed. And, um, you know, he's not a perfect guy, and there are books that go into great length about it, um, and there are amazing stories about the good, the bad, and the ugly of Gene Roddenberry, but he gave us this incredible gift, which we'll all be, you know, deeply grateful for the rest of our lives. So, you know, whatever his flaws and foibles, it is what it is, you know? Okay, last question real fast. Uh, Good afternoon. Thank you guys for being here. Big fan of your podcast. Thank you. So I have my question is this: I love the lineup of episodes you chose. You represented the first, you know, four live-action Star Trek series very well. So my question is this: If you had to pick one episode of Enterprise to add to this lineup, what would it be? <laughs> You're looking at us. Um, well, you know, it's funny. We, this week on on Inglorious Trexperts is our episode. We're doing a whole run called Bible Study. Not Skirball Bible Study. It's on the Bibles of uh, the TV shows, the Writers and Producer Guides, which are called Series Bibles. So this week we did the Enterprise Bible. So if we had a show, if we, 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 we would whisper in Scott's ear about what he should show, um, and it wasn't yesteryear from the animated series, and it was an episode of Enterprise. Well, I mean, I would have to say uh, uh, Into the Mirror Darkly, but that's two parts. Yeah, it's two um, parts. You know, and, and even, you know, maybe... Um, what, I, I think, honestly, Broken Bow, which is the first... Where'd he go? Uh, is the first episode. I mean, Broken Bow is one of the best, like, pilot episodes next to uh, DS9's uh, Emissary, uh, which is yeah, also fantastic. I, I like The Forge, I think, you yeah, know. Um, I, I, well, you know I, I don't, you know, look, this is supposed to be the best of Trek, so... Eh. <laughs> 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 well... I, I will. I will say that that regardless. I mean, first of all, that's a great question. Uh, and and trying to pick ten representing all the shows out of eight hundred plus episodes. Uh, and then you got you know you got the movies. Scott wanted to make all of them TOS. Just so you know. Uh, that is true. I did. I don't um, disagree with him. Well, I, I just the episodes that I'm not showing that I wanted to, and and I'm sure you'll agree. Mirror, mirror, a mock time, yeah. where no man has gone before. And of course, 
because last week we had Wrath of Khan, Space Seed. So, you forgot but, Metamorphosis. Metamorphosis. Oh, who here loves Metamorphosis? I, I love that episode. Written by Gene Kuhn, directed by Ralph Sinetsky. So, ladies and gentlemen, please stick around. The best is yet to come. Although, thank you so much for a great conversation. Yeah, stick and, around for the Akutas with City on the Edge. It'd be and, awesome. And, 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 ladies and gentlemen, please do check out their podcast. Inglorious Trexperts. If you do not listen to Inglorious Trexperts every week, you are missing out. How many Check of you have heard it? Podcast. How many of you have heard it? By show of hands. Thank. Oh. Oh, good. So now all of you can go listen to it, and we can get more listeners. Thank you so much, and stick around because right now, ladies and thank gentlemen, thank you, Scott. Thank, thank you. Scott you. Thank you so much, Darren and Mark. That was fun. Well, see, that was uh, that was fun. I, I wish it had been longer. Uh, it seemed it seemed to go really quick. It did. And then that one person asked about Enterprise, which was like, oh, I really don't want to talk about Enterprise. I want to talk about the original show. But um, but OK, that was fine. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just so interesting because there's so much to deal with uh, in, in, in uh, you know, obviously Balance of Terror, the influence of uh, the enemy below. Um, sure. But uh, just such a seminal Star Trek episode. And, you know, potentially could have been really cheesy, the idea of taking the submarine movie tropes and putting it in space, because obviously certain things don't apply, you know, depth charges and, you know, underwater and, and, and you know, the whole idea of running silent, rigged for silent. But right. somehow it all works. I think the only thing that to this day that bothered me as a kid, that bothers me as an adult still, or, or, or somebody feigning adulthood, is... Um, in the middle of all this tension, Spock is walking around, uh, you know, with his pad, um, checking on people. And even once uh, Kirk calls red alert, he's still just meandering around, walking down the corridor. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, really? There's four. How many people on that ship? And Spock is, is doing this. And then even when there's a red alert, he's just like sort of chilling out down, down, down on the lower decks. And poor Spock gets uh, gets saddled with the responsibility of hitting the wrong button. Yeah, that was a little. I never. It's liked a little that. stretched. It's a little stretched, and I never liked that. I also certainly Spock would know how to get his way around the bridge without. Well, that was a wrong hold, button. That was a holdover of um, submarine movies too. Absolutely. You know Absolutely. the fact that touching one button on <laughs> on on the sensor control would suddenly expose them to sensors. Um, you know, and that neither ship could detect movement, but they had their life support, their gravity on. I yeah. mean, you got to go with it, right? Absolutely. You have to immerse um, yourself in the story. And, because uh, ultimately, the story is so important. The idea that we we learn to hate the enemy, that we have a condition, you know, that we, you know, this is, this is you know, not our war. It, it was their war. You know, Styles yeah. hates the Romulans, even though he's never met a Romulan, because... Right. Hundreds a hundred years ago, his family was killed in, yeah. during the war, um, and it's a really great message. And so, I think what the story that it's telling, and of course his hatred towards Spock, who ultimately right. saves his life. Right. I mean, all that stuff is so wonderful, and it's, it's vintage like, Star Trek. It's a good little submoral story going on in there. Yeah, yeah, it is, and also you got to remember too. This is very early in Star Trek, where we're still finding yeah. the show and. It, it's amazing that it is one of Star Trek's best episodes, and yet it, it is very early in the show's run that they're able to um, to, to really uh, deliver a crackerjack thriller like this. And to be sure, this was the first time a you know a main alien baddie race was established. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. We, hadn't, we hadn't met the Klingons yet, and. Uh, uh, certainly the Romulans became this immense uh, race uh, in Star Trek after this. And it's, it's really uh, interesting. And how, um, you know, apparently Spock doesn't really realize the history of the Romulans. Uh, mm. He, he uh, you know, he thinks that they might be an offshoot of the Vulcans, but he's not really sure. Um, mm -hmm. That certainly was fixed later on. Uh, and uh, it seemed that everyone knew that the Vulcans were, uh, you know, the uh, the predecessors of the Romulans. Um, but I, I found that the that extended story and uh, that uh, those ideas uh, are very fun to think about in sort of the the big picture of Star Trek. 
Well, and they're remarkably well-developed race, given how little we actually um, uh, see them. You know, I, well, I, so true. much is taken from, you know, uh, the Roman Empire, but that's so said, much was taken from the other. <laughs> but it, 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 it's, um, you know, and a lot of that is a testament to the brilliant casting of uh, Mark Leonard. And I, I really wish we didn't know Joe D'Augusta was in the audience. And, and had we known, um, I certainly would have mentioned just how brilliant the casting of Mark Leonard and Lawrence Montague as Decius was. Montaigne. Montaigne as, yeah. as, um, as Decius, uh, who would yeah. later come back in a month time. Both great. And of course, his, uh, his ex-wife um, was the woman who's getting married in the right. uh, chapel that Tomlinson is going to marry. Yeah. So, and, and she comes back in shore leave and, and turn about intruder. But, um, you know, if you listen to the show with Joe D'Agusta, he talks about his wife and she's, she's wonderful in, uh, in the episode as well. And, yeah. and what a great, you know, we did the, the recently, the Star Trek Bible episode, we talked about, they talked very specifically about how to do a teaser. And this teaser is like textbook. There's yeah. like this tension going on, but the, he's conducting the wedding anyway. And then it's interrupted by a red alert. And, you know, it's just so great. I mean, it grabs you right away. And it but also gives you a sense of life on the Enterprise. It's really interesting, too, that it does one of the no-nos that we read in the in the Bible that Kirk puts his arm around uh, uh, Yeoman Rand. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I think that's because they, they, there is so much jeopardy. I don't think it's a romantic thing. I think it's more like she needs comforting well, because she she's scared. Yeah. She thinks it is. But she's terrified. She's, she's worried yeah. this is it. Of course. And he's trying to be uh, consoling. It wasn't a, a romantic gesture on his part. Um, but it's it's a really great episode. Of course, that, that, that ending is truly one of the great moments in Star Trek where he, he offers to beam the survivors aboard the Enterprise. And Mark Leonard tells him um, that he has one last duty to perform and says, in yeah. another universe, I could have called you friend. What a, what a great, great performance. What a great ending to an episode. Really, and it looks so good yeah. on the uh, big screen. Yeah, it, uh, the interesting thing is, I think that they were playing these from DVDs, uh, not the Blu-ray. Um, mm. Because uh, it's a, a whole thing with the uh, opening credits uh, being slightly different uh, in right. terms of the soundtrack, but it still looks gorgeous. And yeah. uh, you know, it's that it's that thing that you know these original shows because they originated on film still have that depth in them uh, of color and detail that uh, is just unsurpassed in. Yeah in modern times, even though uh, everything is really sharp and crisp now, yeah. it doesn't have that magical feel. No, and I'm in awe of the visual effects. And even though they're a little soft because they went through the optical printer so many times, I mean, just the design of the Romulan ships. Um, oh, the, 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 and of course, uh, they used all those shots many times later because they lost the miniature. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah I, which is unbelievable. And which, I have to say, you know, it's so interesting to Star Trek, it's a lot of props for anticipating the future. Um, the idea that, um, you know, so many things it, it predicted. And a lot of people would say, oh, stealth technology. But like the transporter, it was right. created for um, practical reasons. It had nothing to do with predicting the future. Econ it's, economic reasons. Yeah, they wanted to save on special effects. Bob Justman's like, we can't possibly, uh, 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 in the time and money allotted, do all these effect shots. So yeah. Paul Snyder and um, Gene come up with the idea of, of the cloaking device so it's invisible. So we don't have to shoot the ship. I mean, it's brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, necessity is the mother of uh, inventive thinking. Yeah, and yeah. that's what's the case here. And it's interesting with Arena, you have a very similar thing about um, the, them wanting to, you know, a, a potentially a war, um, uh, somebody who's attacked us that now we're, we have to destroy to show strength. Yeah. And but it's very different. And I, as we mentioned in the Q&A, you see the influence of Gene Kuhn. It's much lighter despite the dire stakes. Even right. that first teaser where they're joking around, you're essentialist. You bet your pointed yeah. ears I am. Yeah. Um, and then they beam down to Cestus Three. Another great spectacular teaser. Yeah. One, probably one of the best. If we ever Absolutely. do best Star Trek teasers, that if that's not number one, it's certainly up there. Um, um, even though Captain Kirk isn't necessarily uh, accurate when he says... Cestus 3 is destroyed. What he means is the base on Cestus 3 is destroyed. 
yeah. yeah. Well, it's been destroyed. And <laughs> of course, it is, it's destroyed. And what a great, what a great reveal uh, to show that uh, that set for what was it, Captain from Castile? What was the what was no? The, it was from um, it, no. It, it, you, they built that set, uh, the fort for um, Tales of. Uh, the 77th um Rifles? uh uh no uh, Bengal Lancers. Oh the Bengal Lancers. Bengal right, Lancers. Right. Yeah, so Luke Perry was there. No. Remember <laughs> no, from once upon a time in Hollywood <laughs> right. the Bengal Lancers, yeah. But uh, it was built for that and of course, you know, it wasn't destroyed because I saw it in Mission Impossible uh, a couple of months later. Um right. it, I think it was torn down in the early 70s, which is a shame because it was a great you know, but, it, you know, film sets uh, aren't made to last and it was probably a danger. They probably had to tear it down. Well, and, um, and probably the, the land was so valuable uh, that uh, they probably turned it into uh, houses or something like that. Well, but, it's interesting because in a couple of those big wides, you see them sort of blocking the upper right of frame. So you can't see in the, see the houses in the distance and, and civilization. Yeah, it's uh, it's really fascinating, and of course, we talked all about the uh, the thirty mile zone, the TMZ, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. and uh, and why those uh, sets were out there. Uh, but uh, it's just such a great use of location work uh, for that episode specifically. I bet mm-hmm. they I bet they spent uh, you know five out of the uh, eight, eight days out there because they used well, it for Sesto Street. And yeah. they used it for the the battle with the, the you know with the, the asteroid, yeah, uh, um, yeah. yeah, and it's uh, it's so well done, and that's really hard work to do on location, absolutely. Well, and he came in under under schedule, yeah, yeah, which is extraordinary on that episode with that much action and that yep. much exterior work. Yeah, and dealing it, with a dealing with a costume and dealing with all that sort of stuff, it's really really hard. And, and I want to defend an amazing it. job. I want to defend the costume. You know, people now, they say, oh, laughable. This is what's, you know, Star Trek, it's goofy. And I know people, there were titters in the auditorium. Yeah. That's an amazing costume. Absolutely. You know, I mean, that, that, it feels like a completely alien race. Yeah. I mean, what they did with the eyes was brilliant. Yeah. Um, you know, there was no like mechanical puppeteering back then and stuff, or certainly that they could do on a TV budget. I, I mean, it's so cool it, because they have to tell the story that Gene wrote. Yeah. And that's what it does. It, it's an alien. And you look at it and you think this is this is uh, this is an you would never anticipate that, you know, the ending, you know, if you hadn't right. seen it before, that he spares the life and, and says, maybe I misunderstood. You know, maybe they we were invading their territory. I right. mean, what an incredible message Absolutely. that Kirk can see that. And, and, and what's so interesting, too, was in the original drafts of that. Um, the, the Metrons were going to destroy who, whoever won. They were going to destroy both of them anyway. Right. You know, right. And, and, and so like Kirk, by um, sparing the Gorn, he saved himself. Yeah. You know, uh, because, you know, in the earlier versions, they would have destroyed both ships. Yeah. Um, you know, so uh, it, it's, it's so great. And that William Ware Tice design um, on the Metron is really great. It looks like futuristic and, you know, ethereal and everything. Yeah. And uh, of course the casting is also uh, amazing. And uh, of course the, uh, the voice of uh, the. Uh, um, Vic Perrin or Ted Cassidy? Vic Perrin. Vic Perrin. Yeah, Vic, uh, great. Vic Perrin as the, as the uh, Metron. And uh, of course, Ted Cassidy as the Gorn um, who appeared in other episodes of Star Trek as well. Both but, those voices uh, are spot on. They're so great. They're so great and so different. And uh, just, again, there's that word magical. Uh, one thing uh, that you were going to talk about that we didn't get around to, unfortunately, was uh, uh, Gene Kuhn's inadvertent uh, use of uh, a story. Yeah, how did we not talk about that? I we don't weren't know. Asked. We weren't asked. But uh, <laughs> yeah, that, that, you know, it's a story by Frederick Brown. Fred, Fred, Frederick Brown had nothing to do with this episode. Right. Gene Kuhn wrote this he wrote the story outline in a day and the script in three days and it the network loved it because this is what they wanted planet action fighting it was every you know and gina just started on the show recently and they you know they're like this is what we're talking about then all of a sudden they you know someone realizes and i think it was um joan pierce uh, you know uh, uh you know far forest research the forest research um realized wait a second this is the same plot of a Frederick Brown short story called Arena. 
and Gene Kuhn had inadvertently gotten the idea. Um, and now they were in deep trouble if they couldn't get the rights to the short story. And thank God they sent the script to Frederick Brown, offered him a couple of bucks, and he, you know, and 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 they were able to get the rights. But the only reason he has a story credit is because it inspired it, um, not because uh, he had anything to do with it. But it's a really right. amazing story, and I, I can't believe we weren't. Uh, it wasn't anything that we discussed on the panel. Well, we had lots of things to discuss on the panel, and there just wasn't enough time. Yeah, yeah. If only we had the time. If, if he has the time, Doctor. If he had the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it was a great, it was a great time. And yeah. and it's so many wonderful people who came to see us. We're so grateful. Um, and I, I, you know, anybody we gave short shrift to, I apologize, just because there were so many people. I mean, Mike and Denise, who we haven't seen since the beginning of the pandemic, yep. you know, were there for City on the Edge. So great to see them. Um, uh, Brian Volkweiss, the executive producer of the Center Seat, uh, was there to see us. Uh, Steve Asbell, a frequent guest on the show and president of 20th Century Fox, was was there with his kids to see us and and um, a bunch of other people. And yep. uh, uh, Joe D'Augusta, that was a real. It was great to see him uh, there because uh, I, I was considering going on the second day to see Joe D'Augusta's uh, presentation. Um, but uh, it, it turns out that I couldn't. So I was so glad that he showed up on the first day and we got to see him as well. He's he's a, he's a really, um, a, a, you know, we've met a lot of people on the show, like Bob Salon and we've become friends with, but, uh, and, and so grateful, but uh, so great to um, have had the chance to meet and become friendly with Joe D'Augusta. Yeah. Um, just uh, can't say enough amazing things about him. And I wish we'd singled out his remarkable work on these episodes because they truly were remarkable. Absolutely. And, um, but uh, but it was a great time. We had a great time. We're Absolutely. grateful to Skirball and Scott Mans for including us. Um, I think he did a really great job uh, picking some some terrific episodes um and uh who also should doomsday machine on sunday and and uh some other stuff and far beyond the stars which is great from deep space nine which is Absolutely. a fantastic choice and of course had a show let that be your last battlefield not because anybody wanted to see it but because it's an episode everyone talks about and right uh you know but uh, there was some other stuff they showed too so um, you know we were talking about this a little bit after the presentation yesterday uh that um we should do something like this somehow we should we should you know screen these episodes large if we can find a way uh because it's just there's no other uh experience like it to see these larger than life i'd love to i mean we could do like a trexpert's briefing room live or yeah. something where we watch something. the episodes and then talk about them afterwards and we could bring in a lot of these um these guests that we've had on Absolutely. the show i mean how great would it be to screen the cage and have bob butler come and talk or oh, that would to be screen awesome. You know, so uh, it's something we have to maybe, you know, obviously we need to get the permission of CBS Paramount, yeah. uh, but that's not beyond the realm of possibility. So something to think about or, or, or beyond the rim of the starlight. Indeed. Indeed. But uh, Darren, I have to say it was a great day. Enjoyed uh, spending it with you. Fun. And, it was great, and, uh, great doing that with you. And to all of uh, our, our listeners who came out, because it was great to see so many of you. We gave out a couple of honorary Trexperts certificates, including one to Brian Fuller. Uh, right. So he now is finally, I know uh, he's so pleased that he could finally be deemed a Trexpert. Uh, he finally, <laughs> yeah, I accomplished enough uh, uh, in Star Trek to uh, to get uh, an official Trexpert uh, certificate. So congratulations to our latest Trexpert, Brian Fuller. Um, but uh, it was um, it was a really fun, uh, fun afternoon, fun day. And uh, again, if to everyone who came out to support the podcast, support us, we thank you. I, I got to sign a bunch of books. Always a pleasure um uh and um happy to do so so uh, un until next week we really want to thank bill ritter for coming out most of all absolutely we wouldn't have this um this record of what happened <laughs> uh if it had not been for uh um the metrons and bill ritter uh, allowing those, us to see all those other panels are lost like tears in rain yeah but we have a record of this because uh <laughs> Bill was kind enough to come down on a weekend and record it for us. So thank yep. you so very much, Bill. Um, we really, really do appreciate it. And of course, thank you, Peter Holmstrom, who was on site. And um, uh, and we want to thank everybody. And uh, uh, we, we of course, you. Thanks again to Scott Mance, who brought us in. Absolutely. Big thanks to Scott Mance and everyone at the Skirball. And again, if you haven't been to the exhibit, Exploring Star Trek, it will be there till, till February. So definitely go and check it out. And you can check us out every Friday 
here at Inglorious Trexperts or on Saturday at the Trexperts briefing room. So until an entirely other podcast. So until <laughs> until next next Friday, keep on trekking and gloriously, of course. You're listening to the Electric Surge Network.